Hey, good morning, everybody. It is good to be together again to worship the Lord as one expression of the body of Christ in this area. And it's always a joy to be able to sing praises to Him, isn't it? So if you've got your Bibles, let's open to 1 John. We're going to continue in 1 John this morning. But before we get into our time in God's Word this morning, I want to share with you a principle that's important to keep in mind. And it's important to keep this in mind whenever the focus is on the type topic we've been considering out of 1 John. And let me just give you the principle. It's easy to remember. The principle is presence, not perfection. Presence, not perfection. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? Well, what we've been considering out of 1 John are the marks of a person who is a Christian. We've been talking about that, and we have a goal in mind as we move through 1 John together. Uh, The goal for Christians is assurance of salvation, Uh, seeing us as followers of Jesus Christ be rooted and grounded in the certainty that we belong to God and that Christ belongs to us. And so that's the goal. And then the goal for those that are false professors is discovering their true state. And so for a non-Christian, our hope would be that they might gain salvation. And this means we've been showing from 1 John what the outward evidences of eternal life are, right? Outward evidences. There's an inward evidence of eternal life that people have. And Paul speaks to that. In Romans chapter 8, where he says that God's spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's an inward witness, and that's subjective. But then there are these outward marks, outward evidences of eternal life, and we've considered four evidences thus far. Uh, We've seen that a Christian, a person who has been born by God's spirit, is first of all going to be one that has a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's in chapter 1, verse 3. A person that's honest and realistic about their personal sin. That's also in chapter 1, um, chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 2. Um, a person that's a Christian is going to be a person who loves and obeys God's word. Chapter 2, verse 3 through 6. And then last Sunday... We talked about how a true Christian is going to be one who loves others, and especially other Christians. That's in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. The question is, how much of each of these marks show me that I am a Christian, right? And whenever you're dealing with objective evidences and stuff like that, uh, that's where our principle comes into play, because if you're like me, You can be hard on yourself when it comes to principles from the Word, right? Um, For example, a true Christian loves and obeys God's Word. Obeys how much of God's Word? We know that we can't keep the law. We know that if we start striving to do so, it's going to show us how weak we are. And so how does this come into play? Um, That's where the principle comes in. And it's important to realize these marks are fruits of eternal life, not the root of eternal life. And if you get that reversed, you can find yourself in trouble. 
So the marks John lays out are the fruits of eternal life, not the root of eternal life. And so, presence of these things is important, not perfection. Presence of these marks is important, not perfection. In the same way that a newborn baby shows all the marks of healthy life from the time that he or she is born, but lacks the maturity of a full-grown woman or man, so a brand-new Christian will begin to show and see these marks of spiritual life after they become Christians. But we will never see them to perfection until we find ourselves absent from the body and present with the Lord, and then ultimately, after Jesus comes back and resurrects our body, and we live forever with him as a whole person. That's when we'll see perfection, and so in the meantime, presence is what is important. Now, as I tried to show last Sunday, uh, the fourth mark of a person who is a Christian is that the Christian loves others. In our last song, we were singing about love, and a Christian loves others. Christ loved others. We're Christ ones. We love others, and so that's a general principle, but we also especially love other Christians, and so take a look at 1 John chapter 2 again, and I want to read you verse 9 through 11. That's going to be where we're going to camp out for the rest of our morning. John writes this in verse 9, 10, and 11. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Then verse 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And then verse 11 but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. There's a contrast. Love, lack of love. Love, lack of love. Pretty significant. And this concept, this idea of loving our brothers, um, it comes from a Greek word, uh, adelphoi, and it can be translated brothers and sisters, uh, the concept of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ is such an important mark of the life of believers that John devotes a lot of space just in 1 John exhorting us about loving one another. Um, he addresses this in three different places in his letter. Write these down. You'll see this again. The first is here in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. The second place that John addresses love is in chapter 3, verse 14 to 18. And then when you get to chapter 4, he really drills down on love. And he deals with love from verse 7 through 20. And if you read through that section of Scripture closely you'll see that he uses the word love or loved 24 times in 15 verses. 24 times in 15 verses. Do you think John the Apostle thought that loving one another was important? Yes, indeed he did. 
Jesus had taught that everyone would know that we're his disciples if we love one another like he loved us. And so this is a priority in John's letters. And it's such a priority that some writers have called John the apostle of abiding love. The apostle of abiding love. When you read the gospel of John and you come across the line, the the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's a reference to the Apostle John. He never identifies himself in the gospel as the Apostle John. He was the apostle who Jesus loved. He learned love from Christ. He was very close to Christ. And so it's no wonder that love runs like a thread through his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And this emphasis then raises three questions for us this morning. And this will be the bulk of where we go. And I'm going to give you these questions one at a time, and then we'll answer them from Scripture. Now, here's the first question. What is love? That's super important. What is love? Sometimes we feel like love is the feeling. And actually, that's not what love is in Scripture. Love is not infatuation. Love is not bubbly feelings. It's something broader and deeper than that. And so what is it? Well, honestly, love is kind of like the wind. It is hard to define. We know what the wind is. And we know what love is, but it's hard to define. And so love, hard as it is to define, is easy to identify. And so we can see what love's like when someone who loves us is acting toward us in a certain way. And there's a great place in Scripture to go in order to observe what love is like. And so keep your finger in 1 John chapter 2 and flip back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is known as the love chapter for a reason. And if you know anything about the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll know that Chapter 12 and chapter 14 deal with spiritual gifts, and that's something that lots of people in evangelical churches today gravitate toward, and there are some churches in our world which actually make gifts the priority, but Paul does something very interesting in the midst of these, th- these two chapters about spiritual gifts. He sandwiches between chapter 12 and chapter 13 a chapter on love And he basically is communicating love is far more important than even the gifts that he was talking about. And so what does love look like? Well, take a look at verses 4 through 8. Remember, it's hard to define love, but it's easy to recognize it. Here are some of love's qualities. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, 
hopes all things, endures all things. That's what love looks like. When someone loves me, they're patient. When someone loves me, they're kind. They're not jealous. They don't brag. They're not arrogant. When someone loves me, they consider their actions because to act unbecomingly can bring hurt unnecessarily. And so love has in view how to approach someone, what might be proper. Um, It doesn't seek its own, which means that the object loved is placed before the lover. Okay? That's what love looks like. It's not provoked. That should be a point that we praise God for. Why? God loves us. He absolutely loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his son, and his son went to the cross for us, and it's good to know that love's not provoked. That tells me why God doesn't snuff me out when I sin and I know better. Love is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. When somebody doesn't hold my wrongs against me as a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, the reason that they don't is because they love me in Christ. And so it is with me toward other people. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Uh, Brothers and sisters that love me, my wife, she's going to call me out over unrighteous behavior. Uh, and she's going to rejoice when I'm walking in the Lord. And sometimes she calls me out of the, with unrighteous behavior. Sometimes I can be kind of high strung and I can be snappy. And she looks at me and says, you shouldn't talk to me like that. That's not right. Yeah, you're right. I shouldn't talk to you like that. I'm not being loving toward you. I'm not being patient toward you. Will you forgive me? None of you married couples ever experienced that, do you? And so it's hard to define what love is, but it's easy to notice it when it's in operation. We can see its characteristics, and we know when someone loves us. This is the way Scripture defines love. And verse 8 says, love never fails. And then when you get to the end of the chapter, verse 13 of 13, but now faith, hope, love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And then in verse four, chapter 14, verse 1, Paul actually says, pursue love. Pursue love. Pursue love. Guys, when you set your heart on your wife, did you pursue her? To ultimately see her become your wife, did you? If you didn't, you're not going to admit it. Actually, if you don't pursue the woman that you want to make your wife, she's probably not going to be your wife. Um, Paul is saying, pursue love like that. Pursue love like that. Chase it. Pray for it. Seek it. Practice it. Now listen, love is all these behaviors. Another way to put it would be to say, these are the fruits of love. These are the fruits of love. And it makes sense because the Greek word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 13, and also in John, John uses it where love appears. 
in chapter 2, 3, and 4 of his letter is the Greek word agape. There are three words in Greek that express love. One never appears in the, in the scripture. Uh, that's eros. That has to do with physical love. Then the other is phileo, which has to do with kind of brotherly love. And then there's agape. That's the more significant, deeper, stronger love. And that's the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13. And John uses whenever he references love in John, or 1 John, I should say. Um, and what is agape? Well, agape has to do with affection. It has to do with goodwill. It has to do with benevolence. It's a picture of brotherly love. And these behaviors listed in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8 flow from a heart of affection. And they flow out to God, but they also flow to brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 John 4, 8 actually tells us, listen to this, God is love. The word used is agape, a form of it. God is agape, therefore to love is to be godly. You see that connection? What does it mean to be godly? It means to be like God. God is agape. God is love. Therefore to love is to be godly. Well, wait a minute, what about all the instructions and stuff like that? Paul says that love is the fulfillment of the law because love does no harm to its neighbor. If you love, you're going to by nature keep the law. God is love, therefore to love is to be godly. You want to grow in godliness, brothers and sisters? Grow in love toward other brothers and sisters in Christ and toward everybody. That's how we become godly. Very simple principle. So that was the first question. What is love? Now here's the second question. Who are we to love? Who are we to love? You and I both know that there are some people that we easily love and then there are other people that we just tolerate, right? And if we're honest in the congregation here, there are some people that we really love. Man, I just love that guy. I just love that gal. We just love that couple. And then somebody else's name may come up, and you might not verbalize it, but you might feel in your heart, uh, you know, it just takes all the grace in me to just tolerate the ground they walk on. You have anybody like that in your life? And you know what? <laughs> Did somebody say my brother? <laughs> I hope not. No, listen, though, seriously. And I have to say this. Uh, sometimes a marriage can reach a point where the person that we have to tolerate the most is our spouse, right? Uh, I do a lot of marriage counseling, and occasionally I'm working with a couple, and that's where their relationship has de degraded to. Uh, one of them just tolerates or even despises the other. Uh, these things ought not to be, brothers and sisters, if we're Christians. But the question, who are we to love, is very important. It's very important. And so let me answer it. There's a general and a specific answer to that question. Let me show you two texts. Uh, keep your finger in 1 John and go back to 1 Thessalonians. Thessalonians. 
1 Thessalonians. We don't hear a lot from the book of Thessalonians, but 1 and 2 Thessalonians are wonderful books. Now listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians. We have it in the form of chapter 3, verse 12. I'll start in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And verse 12. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. There's other brothers and sisters in Christ. And for all people. There's everybody. Just as we also do for you. Now look. That was a tall order in Paul's day. Many of the churches in the Apostles Paul's day were made up of Jewish believers in the Messiah Christ and Gentiles who the Jews viewed as dogs. In fact, that's the way Jews referred to Gentiles, the dog Gentiles. You get a glimpse of how Powerful that could be when you read about Jesus healing or rather delivering the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman from a demon. Now, you might not be familiar with that story, but in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's this story of a woman who was a Syrian slash Phoenician, a Gentile who came to Jesus and asked if he would deliver her daughter from a demon. And the first thing Jesus said to her was, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. What was behind that? She was a dog Gentile. Did Jesus really call her a dog? Is that the way, is that the way he looked at her? That was a test of faith. Because she looks back at him and says, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then his heart came out. Woman, great is your faith. Your daughter's well. And he delivered her daughter. So you've got these mixed churches in the first century made up of Jews and Gentiles who just generally didn't get along. And now they're all in Christ. And they're called to love one another. That's to be the mark, right? That's to be the mark. And then you had people from different social strata. If you study Jesus' first disciples, dude, there was a zealot and a tax collector. Now, who were the zealots? They were the revolutionaries in Israel in the first century. Their goal was to overthrow, even violently, the Roman imperial government that was controlling Israel. And then you had tax collectors. Who were they? They were guys that were in the pocket of the Romans, and they could fleece their people and make as much extra money as they could as they collected taxes. Tax collectors could be targeted by zealots to be put to death because they were seen as traitors to Israel, right? So what does Jesus do? He calls Simon the zealot as a disciple and Matthew the tax collector as a disciple. And it wouldn't surprise me if he put those two guys together and said, go out and preach my kingdom. Now, how would that work? How would that work? Well, it would require some supernatural resource. And I think you understand that. 
But that's what our calling is. And so um, Paul says, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound. That's the key. We need supernatural resources. If you look at Matthew 5.44, and you read the verse prior, Jesus says in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said by them of old, you shall love your friends and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you if you're reading the New American Standard. If you're reading the King James because it's based on a different text family, it says, I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. That's the call of the kingdom. That's countercultural. That's countercultural even in some churches, right? And so who are we to love? Well, specifically or generally, uh, we're to love everyone, even our enemies. And here's the challenge. And you and I know this is true. Sometimes we have a hard enough time loving our friends. And sometimes we have a hard enough time loving our family. How in the world are we going to love our enemies? Well, it takes supernatural resources. We'll talk about that more in a minute. So generally everyone, even our enemies, specifically 1 John chapter 2, verse 10, the one who loves his brother or his brother and sister, and the implication is brothers and sisters in Christ, abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Why? Because love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And so if I'm not going to do harm for you, I'm not going to cause you to stumble. But if I do cause you to stumble, we'll talk about that in a moment as well, because you and I know that sometimes we do. And other passages lay this out. We're called to love fellow believers. And what this means is that the behavior and attitude that we have listed in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, should generally characterize our congregation. It should generally characterize our families. It should generally characterize us as individuals if we are Christians. And in a family, if you happen to be a Christian in a non-Christian family, it should generally characterize you toward those that are not Christians in your family. And if people that aren't believers come into our midst, it should generally characterize we who are Christians toward those who are not Christians. And it should generally characterize us toward the unbelieving world, if we are Christians. Now keep in mind, we're talking presence, not perfection. Presence, not perfection. And this brings us to the third question, which is an application question. <laughs> we've talked about what is love, and we've talked about who are we to love. Now, here's the third question. How? How are we to love? How are we to be one who loves our brother and sister? How are we to walk in love? What's that going to look like? And this is really where the rubber meets the road, my brothers and sisters. Um, you know, one of the things we learn early on as we're following Jesus. And Paul wrote about this in one place in Romans. Uh, we can accumulate knowledge faster than we can apply it. We can accumulate knowledge faster than we can apply it. 
And so it's easy for us to say, okay, I see how I should be, but what do I do? What does it look like in everyday life? To will is present with me. How to perform that which is good, I don't find. And so that's what this third question is about. How? How are we to love? Well, let me just give you four bullet points from Scripture that identifies how we are to love. And I want you to look at these verses with me. And so look at Ephesians chapter 4 really quickly. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 says this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Let me read it again. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You know the difference between someone that's tenderhearted toward you and hard-hearted toward you? You know the difference between someone who's kind and someone who's unkind. This is how we're to love. And adding to that, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Listen, when we start talking about forgiving other people, whether those within the body of Christ or those who are outside the body of Christ, I know from my own life, and I know from having been a pastor for over half my life, that some who hear the instruction, forgive, are carrying some wounds and some damage as a result of heinous sin against them by evil people. And if that's you, then when I say forgiving each other, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard right? If you're carrying certain animosities or certain wounds, the idea of forgiving certain people, if you're a Christian, is nevertheless like fingernails on a chalkboard. It's repulsive. And you know what, brothers and sisters? If you had to do that in your strength, you would never do it. If I had to forgive in my strength, I would never do it. I do not have the capacity within my human self to forgive certain wrongs that were done to me as I grew up. No way. Couldn't do it. Couldn't get there. Some of you relate to me. But this little verse gives us a key. Let me show you what it is. It doesn't just say forgiving each other and stop with a period, does it? So if you're looking at the verse, what comes after the word other? Okay, somebody give it to me. Right. Did you all hear that? Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Look, the key to forgiveness from a Christian to someone who sinned against them, whether it's a small sin or huge heinous sins, is that we're to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. Now, the more I get in touch 
with how God in Christ has forgiven me, the more forgiveness is going to be released by me toward other people. Sometimes what happens is that as followers of Jesus, we're not that in touch with the depth and breadth of sinfulness Christ has forgiven us for and keeps forgiving us about. The key, though, to forgive each other is to realize how God in Christ has forgiven us, and that empowers forgiveness for others. I've said this before. I'll say it again. How does God in Christ forgive me? Absolutely, totally, completely, no questions asked. Peter denied three times that he knew him. Jesus restored him three times before he went back to heaven. That's in John 21. Paul was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent man. He had Christians put to death. How did Jesus forgive him? Absolutely, positively, totally. No questions asked. Because on the cross, all of those sins are forgiven. That's how God in Christ forgives us. And so ask yourself a question. Is there anyone I need to forgive in my life? Is there anyone that I need to extend forgiveness to? Anything my spouse has done to me that I need to forgive her or him for? Anything my parent has done to me that I need to extend forgiveness for if I'm a Christian, young people? Anyone that we need to forgive? Love calls for forgiveness. And only as we get in touch with how much Christ has forgiven us will we, will we be able to do so. But pray to the Lord that he empower you to do it. Um, that's in the Lord's prayer, by the way. Um, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then Jesus repeats that part after he completes the prayer. And so that's how important it is in the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. And oh, what freedom there is when we extend forgiveness or when someone comes and says, I've, you've sinned against me, you've done this, and you say, you know what, you are absolutely right. I did, I hurt you, I broke your heart, I wronged you. Please forgive me, I had no excuse. Please forgive me. What freedom comes when those things happen. Now, here's a second bullet point. You're in Ephesians 4. Look back to the second verse. Verse 4 says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been calling, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. That's what the New American Standard says. New King James translates, bearing with one another in love. What does it mean to bear with someone? It means you put up with them. You just put up with them. Yeah, he's got that fault, and I'm just going to look the other way. Love covers a multitude of sins. We're called to bear with one another in love. That does not mean we're doormats. No. Jesus tells us how to deal with conflict. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell them his fault between you and him alone. 
But there are a lot of things that happen in life between people that have nothing to do with particular sin against us. Uh, It goes back to that person that we find almost intolerable, and we just have to tolerate them. This is what Paul is talking about here, showing tolerance for one another in love, bearing with them with one another in love. Anyone you need to have patience with? You remember, love is marked by patience. That's one of its fruits. Pray and ask the Lord to extend your patience and deepen it and help you be more of a lover toward that person. Here's a third uh, bullet point. Look at Galatians chapter 6. Now, Galatians, if you are in Ephesians, is the little book that appears before Ephesians does. For those of you who are new believers and you don't know your way around the Bible very well, um, so let me just give you kind of a side note. This is not in my notes. So the New Testament is laid out like this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are the Gospels. Then the book of Acts is the book of history. And then you've got, first, then you've got Romans, and then 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, right? And then after that, you've got four little books. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Let me tell you how you can remember that. A friend of mine taught me this, this acronym, and I've never forgotten it. Remember, after 2 Corinthians, God eats popcorn, right? Galatians, God. Ephesians, eats. Philippians, pop. Colossians, corn. God eats popcorn. So, let's get back on track. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Another way that love manifests is here, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We show love by bearing one another's burdens. That means we come alongside others who are facing various trials. How do we do that? Well, let me just say this to you. Uh, One of the things we learned early on as law enforcement chaplains Uh, chaplains that deal with all kinds of trauma and man I I can't even I can't even begin to tell you what some of the situations um, that a chaplain might walk into are like and if you're law enforcement you understand what I'm talking about but one of the key principles when you're serving as a chaplain or a pastor and you're interacting with people in trauma is called the ministry of presence often the most powerful way that we bear one another's burdens is just to be present, just to be there. In really, really difficult situations, words will never suffice, ever. In many difficult situations, only the comfort that comes from the Holy Spirit is going to suffice in a person's heart. And if a person that you're working with is a non-Christian, they don't even have that opportunity. But the ministry of presence is a powerful thing. And so the first way that we bear one another's burdens is just to be there, just to be there when it's appropriate, just to be present for each other. Uh, Secondly, prayer always, prayer always. Paul talks about how the burden of all the churches were upon his shoulders, Um, and you as brothers and sisters in Christ are called to be praying for each other and 
a great way to bear someone else's burden is to pray always. Um, and then there's other physical support, right? Love meets needs. 1 John 3.17 talks about that. Uh, we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the law of Christ. And so here's the fourth. Galatians 5.13. Uh, Galatians 5.13 says this. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Through love serve one another. You know where church fights come from? I'll tell you where they come from. One person gets in the flesh, causes an issue, and then another person responds to that issue in the flesh, and now you've got two fleshites going after it, and then other people take sides. That's where church fights come from. So Paul says, you were called to freedom, brethren. Freedom to walk in the love of Christ. Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Don't get involved in that kind of tension. Instead, serve one another through love. Serve one another through love. You know what the greatest example looks like of serving one another through love? First, or John chapter 13. John 13. Do you know what the main story in John 13 is? It's Jesus washing the disciples' feet. If you want to delve deeper into that story, we don't have time to go deep into it today, connect with Pastor Goloff, get into his John study, because you're going to come to John 13. Jesus Washing the disciples' feet in John 13, 5 through 17 is the greatest example of serving one another we have in the scriptures except for one other example. Jesus washing the disciples' feet is the second most significant example. There's only one other act of service in the life of Jesus Christ that trumped that, and that is when he willingly went to the cross and died as our substitute paying our sin debt so we might be forgiven, and praying for the people that killed him. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. Listen, that's how Christ forgives us. My sin put him on the cross. So did yours. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's how we're called to forgive other people, right? So in closing, let me just say this. Living out a life of love is so important, brothers and sisters. Let me give you some other instructions that uh, scriptures throw down. Uh, Romans 12, 10, we're to love with brotherly affection. Romans 13, 8, the one who loves fulfills the law. 1 Corinthians 14, 1, pursue love. 1 Corinthians 16, 4, let all be done in love. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. We sung about that. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And flowing out of love comes joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Pray for the Spirit to produce this fruit in you more and more and more and more. You cannot work this up. You can receive as the Spirit fills 
and produces fruit in your heart. Pray for it. And as you pray for it, practice it. Pray for it, and as you pray for it, practice it. And so the fourth mark of a Christian is love for other Christians and for others as well. And it is such an important mark that Jesus said the world will know that we are Christians to the extent that we love one another. And so brothers and sisters, pursue, pursue, pursue love. Pursue it in prayer. And then take action. And a great place to take action is not toward those that you naturally love, but toward those that you have a hard time tolerating. Make it a point to get up next to them. Learn their story. Tell them your story. Maybe even confess, you know, I've always had a hard time dealing with you. (laughs) Now listen, that's important. I've always had a hard time dealing with you. But I want to love you. I want to learn to love you. I want you to pray for me that I can love you better. Right? Only Christ knows what would happen if we actually did that. Right? All right. Now, what if you're not a Christian? Or what if you know people that aren't Christians? Well, let me just share with you several things. First of all, pursue Jesus Christ. Pursue Jesus Christ. If you've been looking at these marks and you're saying, for me, it's not a matter of presence, it's more of a matter of absence of these things, that would indicate for you that you've never been born again. And you probably know people that aren't Christians, and so pursue Jesus Christ. How do I do that? Well, learn about him. Learn about him. You never come to love someone unless you learn about him. And how can you learn about him? Well, you can read Matthew, you can read Mark, you can read Luke, you can read John. If you want to make it easier, uh, there are these little booklets out in the foyer. It's the essential Jesus. And this is actually the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Pick a copy up and read it. Read the Gospel of Jesus for yourself, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Learn about him. Uh, Learn what he has done and why you need him. One of the best booklets I've seen, and I've talked about this from up front, and undoubtedly some people are taking me to heart because when I began to come down and share the word with you guys, there was a stack of these out in the foyer, and I went to pick one up this morning, and they're all gone. So people have been picking them up as, as, as they leave. Um, this is the little booklet, Experiencing God's Grace. If you're not a Christian, it's a wonderful starting place. Um, to learn who Christ is, what he's done, and why you need him, and then how to get him into your life. And if you know people that aren't Christians, this is a great little booklet to take people that are in your arena through. There are two out there. I put two out there. Um, I've got a stack of them at home, but uh, you get the message. Um, Also, ask about him. Ask how to get to know him. Talk to me or to a person who you know knows Christ. Talk to a person who you know knows Christ and your goal is to come to that place where you recognize him for who he is and for what he has done. And then you come to him with your need and in faith you believe on him. With that, let's pray. We thank you, Father, that we could be together this morning and once again look at some scripture out of your little letter, 1 John. 
I know that I've said lots and lots and lots of things this morning, and there's been so much information given, but I also know, Holy Spirit, that you often take one line, one sentence, one paragraph, and you use it to build us up in our faith if we're Christians or to call us to faith if we're not. And so my prayer is that you would do just that. That you would be sealing your word to the hearts of your believers. That you would be calling those who are not believers to become such if there's anybody here that has discovered that the marks of a Christian are absent in their lives. Help them humble themselves and cry out to you for mercy. And then I pray for this congregation. I pray that you would build the love of Christ into us in such a way that we're actually walking in love toward each other and the community discovers that we are Christ's disciples by the way we love one another and by the way that we love them, those outside the faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.